This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Hello? Hey, how are you? Sorry, I'm a couple minutes late. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, no worries. I'm glad the Zoom background worked. This is my first time actually trying it out. <laughs> oh, it works great, looks great, looks great. Yeah, you've got uh, an expansive background there. I feel like when yeah, I'm on call, you can just reality. see like my great wall. <laughs> this is reality, so I've, I've tried to, I, although I do have some nice backgrounds I use for meetings, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, we show our individuality through our Zoom backgrounds now. We used to, you know, men used to do it through ties and women used to do it through scarves and, and different outfits and now it's like what's your zoom background look like yeah. <laughs> uh, different worlds exactly exactly so uh why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh your organization and what you're passionate about we'll go from there yeah so uh my name's jenna beglin um i work at samsung um i lead a team focused on consumer research for our um, new innovation concepts and early stage products um, in the services area. So all of our um, native uh, software services and apps and things like that. Um, I lead a team that conducts primary consumer research around those. Um, prior to Samsung, um, I started my career in more traditional strategy consulting. Um, so I was focused on digital strategy at Accenture for a long time before digital strategy even had a name. Um, and then I ended up transitioning to Kind of the world of brand and innovation consulting, um, oh, helping, stuff. yeah, fun. cool stuff, fun stuff. So that's where I got a lot of my um, initial consumer research exposure, but more approaching consumer insights from trying to drive kind of brand redesign um, and new innovation concepts. Um, and then from there, I pivoted into, into my role at Samsung right now. And um, I think um, it's it's an awesome place to be. Consumer research is more important, I think, than it ever has been before, especially in the tech world, um, area I'm super passionate about. So it's been really exciting. Nice. So do you use design thinking? <laughs> uh, design thinking is such a buzzwordy term. Um, I know, I, but I say, it brings in the clicks. It brings in the clicks. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, fair. I would say to some extent, yes. So especially when we are dealing with um, early stage concepts, um, I, I don't think it comes naturally to a lot of organizations. I think a lot of organizations want, especially when you're working with um, product managers and people who are more execution oriented, um, a lot of the times we want to put these barriers in front of us to say, all right, well, that's not feasible. We shouldn't even bother putting that in front of the consumer. And I think, um, on the consumer research team, we're always pushing people in early stages to really think about what we want the ideal end state to look like. Let's test that with consumers. And then let's see how, from an organizational standpoint, we can try to work towards it. So I think from that perspective, yes, we leverage design thinking. Um, I don't know that we leverage it in kind of the um, traditional sense, but um, I, I think there's always an element of that that we try to bring into the work that we do. Well, I guess, do you do like, what kind of what kind of prototypes do you do when you do, when you do customer research? Do you do paper prototypes or do you have actual POCs or what do you normally do? Because we're dealing with a lot of software products, we don't typically use a lot of paper prototypes. Sometimes if we're dealing with new hardware innovation, uh, we might. Um, really we're testing any sort of fidelity of concept. So it can be a one-liner idea we have. Um, it can be, we sketch some mock-ups real quick. We have some wireframes. It can be a fully fledged clickable prototype. Um, so we really test the full gamut. Um, and we're really involved at every kind of stage 
of the product development life cycle, which I think is something that's really exciting. I think a lot of the times when we're in tech and we think about consumer research, we, we think about usability and, and how yeah. are we designing the UI and how optimized is it? Right. right, exactly. And so I think that's a part of it, but we really can, um, in consumer research, get involved so much earlier to help drive the conversation in terms of where a product might be headed. So would you say that, have you been in situations where you're, you actually started it or does it usually come from somewhere else within the organization before it comes to you? So I would say the point, the earliest point I've been involved from a consumer research perspective is we have an area we want to explore and it could be something as broad as we want to explore beauty or fashion or audio, right? That's a pretty broad area. <laughs> it can be really broad. And I think from that perspective, we get that, that's probably the earliest we get involved. And, and when we are approached with questions like that, it's really trying to understand what consumer journeys look like in those spaces, what the pain points and unmet needs consumers might be dealing with in those spaces are, that there may be services we need to think about that may meet those needs. Um, so it, that, that's kind of the earliest we get involved, but yes, we have from that perspective been involved in uncovering insights that drive new innovation, which is really exciting. That's very cool. So sometimes I'm assuming that sometimes when you're in these sessions, you know, customers will provide you with some feedback and that will actually generate completely new directions. How many times has that happened? Yeah, it, it, sometimes, um, I would say what's, what's really interesting about, um, the world of consumer research is that, you know, I think a lot of organizations want to tie everything they do to measurable outcomes when it comes to revenue generation, right? And I think it's a natural thing to do and it's great when you can do that. But what I always say in consumer research is sometimes the most valuable thing I can do is tell you not to do something. Um, <laughs> so it's really hard to measure the revenue impact of not doing something. Um, but I, I think a lot of the times it, it will be, it, we've run into situations where we test something, it's not resonating and we need to totally pin its direction. Right. Um, so we do run into that. Do you know that, do, do you know that ahead of time? Like, can you sense, like when somebody comes to you and says, oh, here's a one-liner of something we want to test. Do you go back and say, you know what, this is, this is not going to work. We, we know, we pretty much know what's going to, what's going to come out. I think some of the time that happens, um, but I think one of the beauty, the beautiful things about consumer research is that it is objective. It's not someone's opinion in an organization saying, I think this, and then someone else says, I think this, and you get caught in the scroll of who should we listen to. It is objective feedback from your consumer, which is a lot harder to argue with. Um, sometimes people come to me with ideas and based off of the consumer research we've done in the past, you know it's probably not gonna test well. Um, other times they come to me with ideas that I might think are fantastic or, or not that great. Um, and it surprises me because they do test really well. And it always is a constant reminder that I am one person um, and my views do not represent everyone. Um, no matter how close I am to consumer research or in tune with what consumers want, sometimes it's hard to break yourself out of the, what would I want bucket? Um, right. and, and it's always hard, it's always, kind of an eye opener when things you think aren't going to work or might work really well end up getting the completely opposite feedback that, that you're not representative of everyone. Right. Well, I'm really curious about this because, you know, I feel that everyone kind of lives in their own separate reality, right? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, my reality is different from the next person's reality. Even if you start bringing cohorts together and you say, hey, these people are all separate and we want to pitch this product to them, but they all have different realities. How do you get to that objective standard? Yeah, I think one of the, the most valuable tools that we can employ is the concept of customer segmentation. Um, and I think a lot of the times when we talk about customer segmentation from a business perspective, people's mind go to demographics um, or usage behaviors, which I think are really helpful. Um, and especially when it comes to direct targeting, like I know that user specifically is a millennial female um, with kids, right? So it's really, so I'm going to target them with this message. So that's really valuable for specific targeting. But what's really interesting is when you start to segment populations by their behaviors and their motivations behind using something. So let's say we're talking about the audio streaming, like the music streaming um, in market. And we 
we want to approach segmentation from a motivation behind why people stream music. Um, and what you get into are these really fascinating segments that actually are completely different from one another. And there may be six segments and one of them may represent 20% of the population in terms of their biggest driving motivation behind why they do something. And another one may represent 8% of the population. And when you do that, it, it's really eye-opening to see that people just approach using products from a totally different perspective. And it can be situationally dependent, but a lot of the time people's kind of natural kind of default behavior really comes out and is really strong. Well, that sounds like you're going to have a million different segments, though, because you're going to have like the 23-year-old guy who listens to, you know, rap in the afternoon at 4 p.m. to 4, from 4 p.m. till 4:30, and then goes off and does something else. That seems like ultra targeted. How can you get numbers out of stuff like that? Yeah. So what what's really interesting is you actually start to see it coalescing when you talk about motivations um, into a few groups. Um, and I think segmentation—it's a science to the extent that you are doing statistical analysis to cluster analysis to find out what those segments are, but it is an art in that you really want, you can get really granular with segments or you can get really broad and it's trying to strike the balance between what's going to be the most useful for the organization um, in terms of how many segments um, and how different the behavior really is once you start getting down to those granular um, buckets. But from a motivation perspective, you really find that like there are kind of certain archetypes of people and why they use things. Um, and, and, and I think when you, when you get into the like usage behavior segments, yes, they can get very granular to your point. Like this person uses this at this time and this is how they use it. But when you talk about like underlying motivation, I think it really does start to kind of coalesce around these um, specific archetypes. Right. So you were mentioning earlier that you had different, there are different types of prototypes that you would present and some from one-liners to something a little more detailed. Is there like a, a sweet spot for any particular kind of like that you have to go to a certain point and say, okay, now's the time we should bring in the consumer research or is there, is there like, is there a specific spot that's most effective for that? They all have their pros and cons. Um, I think that when you're dealing with multiple concepts, um, probably something around like an early wireframe sketch phase is the most effective because people are able to view multiple concepts and give reactions on multiple concepts. So you're able to compare and contrast. Um, if you're dealing with one concept that um, you're trying to see go, no go, um, the more exposure you can give to them. So like clickable prototype, the better. Um, so they really understand what you're dealing with. Um, but that comes along with its own host of um, challenges, right? So you, you, you're dealing with one concept and it's do we do it or not? Um, how do you make that decision, right? When you get feedback and you say, all right, 70% of people liked it. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that something we should move forward with or not, right? That comes with its own host of challenges as well. Right, right. So when you when you talk about the the wireframes, so you said like a, a single so a single concept. With you said that should be more like a like let's go through the process of it. It's like a non-working prototype. Is that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, it can be. Sometimes it can be like clickable clickable wireframes or a, a video that takes you through the customer experience and kind of introduces people to the key features of um, we're dealing with an app of the app. Um, sometimes we, we will have live hosted actual prototypes that people who can get into and click around. Um, so it, it really depends. Um, I think when you're dealing with one concept, um, the more fidelity you can bring, the better. Um, but you know, sometimes the business situation, that's just not something that you can actually feasibly do. And you have to move forward with early stage wireframes or sometimes quite frankly, you're not convinced of the actual decision you want the actual path you want to go down, right? And it doesn't make sense to actually put in all of the effort to develop a prototype before you have that check with consumers of whether or not it's something they'd be interested in. Would you say you get better or worse feedback when the prototype is less or more polished? I, I wouldn't say, um, I wouldn't say it's better or worse. I think it can be different. Um, so when you get to that level of fidelity, oftentimes you can start to get into, 
what consumer like preferences and expectations are. So you can get a little bit beyond just, do you like the concept? Yes or no. Or how does it compare to other concepts or other competitive ideas that are out there right now? Um, you can actually get right. into, all right, if you were to, let's say like turn on or open this app, right? What would you actually expect to see on the front screen? And is what we're showing you actually what you would expect, right? You can actually start to get into some of those like very overarching design principles. Um, so you can provide additional guidance. Um, but in terms of whether or not the, the reaction, I think the reaction you get is gonna be more accurate the closer you are to the thing that you are actually planning for, right? So. Um, as you head down that product development life cycle, the, the responses you're getting from consumers are going to be more accurate because, quite frankly, they have more information to be making their decision off of. That's interesting because I just sort of wrapped up a design thinking course and they said, well, the more refined the prototype, the less useful feedback you're going to get. So you, it sounds like you're telling me something different. I, I think, it, I mean, it depends what's, what's, the, what's their goal um, in the design thinking course, right? Um, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, because if you've already gone down, I mean, people into the if, mental models. if it's really, really fine, you and the other thing they said is that you get like way more positive feedback if the, if it's rougher, but you get more negative feedback if it's more refined. Have you seen that as well? I have not seen that. Um, okay. <laughs> I've not seen that, but I, you know, like I, 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 I can see it being valid in certain scenarios because I could see when you have it more, when it's higher fidelity, people um, are treating it more as if it is a product that should be ready in market um, and are more critical. I could see that happening from a consumer perspective. I've not seen it in practice in my work. Okay. Yeah. Cause they were saying that it's like, they could, they could tell you what's wrong with it if you, if it's really, really refined, but they'll tell you what you can make better if it's not refined. So I don't know, I guess it all depends on what you're doing. It's like, it's like, it's something you said earlier. It really depends on what outcome you're looking for, right? If you're looking for, if you're looking for just a refinement outcome, then you want to get that deeper that in. Otherwise you just sort of start at the one liner thing. Have you, I mean, when was the last time you had a one liner? Has it been, and was it really, really effective to, to just come at them with a, here's the concept. Typically not, not if you're trying to make a go, no good decision. No. Um, but if you've got a bunch of things that you're considering um, and you want to figure out where to focus your um, organization's resources, it's really valuable to get that cut. Okay. It's also really helpful when you do concept tests that early on and you have a bunch of different concepts to see what different audiences each of those concepts are resonating with. And when we do surveys and we do the analysis on the back end, you're able to see, hey, this demographic is actually over-indexing or this segment is over-indexing on being interested in this concept. If this is an audience we're thinking we wanna target, this may be an interesting area to go down. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it happens a lot when we've just got a bunch of ideas that we're throwing around. Right. So you're mentioning something about the differences between tech and non-tech and customer, customer uh, what is it, uh, research methods for different, different types of companies. And what, what would you say is the big differentiator between those two? So, and transparently, I've spent most of my research career in tech. I've, I've back in my brand and innovation consulting days, I had some um, CPG and food and beverage clients and some retail clients. But um, I, I think the biggest thing I've observed is from a research perspective, um, some of the, like, especially CPG still tends to rely on very traditional methods of research. Um, and I think it makes sense, right? They, they were the kings of consumer research for a very long time. Um, they kind of founded <laughs> consumer research um, methods and practices, and um, they're, they're very deeply entrenched in those organizations. Um, but you see them leveraging a lot of like external agencies. You see, um, and with that model comes a very costly research, very lengthy delivery times, which is okay when you're developing, oftentimes at these large CPG companies, you're developing products that can take years to get to market, right? Um, in and tech, expensive. Yeah. Right. It's, it, yeah, and in tech, we're dealing with product development life cycles. It can be anywhere between three months to a year, actually get a product out the door from start to finish. And so 
your yep. turnaround times just have to be so much faster. And so there are a lot of agile research tools that exist in the market that allow you to get those insights much quicker. They're not necessarily as refined. They're kind of quick and dirty, but that tends to be something that's more valuable in tech because we are dealing with such tight turnaround. Sometimes I have I have stakeholders approach me and they need uh, they need this data in three days. And we just started talking about it. So it's really what can you do in the timeline that you're afforded um, to provide any amount of guidance and insight. So I think that's one huge difference. Um, the other is in tech, we're dealing a lot of the times, we're collecting a lot of data on our customers and how mm -hmm. they use our products. So when we're dealing with in-market products and we're trying to do research on that, we have a lot of data analytics that's supporting what people are actually doing, which is great because blended with consumer research, the data tells us what they're doing, right? And the trends and what we're seeing them do. The consumer research comes in and steps in and can help understand and uncover why they're doing um, so it's a really nice, um, it's a really nice um, kind of collaboration that we have. Um, I think sometimes in like more of the CPG and retail, when you're dealing with hard products, you're not collecting data on how people are using them after. There you actually have sales data, which is really helpful. But um, I, I think in, in tech, we have such a like, plethora of data that we're dealing with that we can actually pull from that really helps inform a lot of the work we do on the primary consumer side, which is really cool. Yeah, in fact, you could probably use that data itself and not even talk to customers to figure out what's the, what's the next product or the next iteration of what you're looking for. Yeah, sometimes, right, like we'll be talking to our stakeholders and they'll say, I really, we're, we wish we understood this. And it's like, well, you can probably get that by digging into the data analytics. What you don't get from data analytics is consumer rationale and the why behind what people are doing. Um, and that's really valuable um, to understand what's driving those trends. I think the other huge thing that's a big difference in tech is um, the concept of A-B testing, right? It's pretty easy to just put out a little change to an app and see how people react. And if it's not good, change it back or put out half our users, see one thing, half our users see another, right? That's something you can do in tech. You can't really do in a lot of other industries because you're not gonna put out two versions of um, a product and see which one tests better um, actually in the wild. Um, so I think that's another- Well, they do the comic book industry. You have two different covers on a comic book, right? <laughs> or multiple covers, which see which one sells. Right. <laughs> Not as easy. Not as easy. <laughs> Very cool. So, so would you say that, is there like a, some method that is more effective than others when it comes to like, is there a startup founder who's got like an idea and they want to test it? Are there like some methods that are more effective than others to just, to just get, get the idea out there and get some, some early feedback on it? Yeah, so there are some, I think one of the challenges with consumer research, especially for early stage startups, is that it can be resource intensive and it can be really costly. Um, so I, right, I've done projects that range anywhere between a few thousand dollars and a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, Obviously, right. that's not something that a startup can actually invest in. And so there are certain tools well out there, right? unless you're a very well-funded startup. Um, but even then, right, I think you've got a lot lot more places you want to spend your resources than uh, putting it all into consumer research. So um, there are, a few, there are right. some platforms out there that exist that actually are, enable people to get really quick and quick and dirty relatively affordable um, consumer feedback. So there are a lot of like DIY survey platforms out there. Like I'm sure everyone has heard of SurveyMonkey. Um, a lot of people use it to send surveys to people they know, but they have like a panel where they can recruit for you and you can actually develop surveys and get consumer research from people you don't know. Um, there are a lot of platforms like that out there and those can range anywhere from $500 to $5,000, depending on how many people you want to recruit and how hard they are to find. Um, but those can be really effective um, options and they re deliver responses anywhere between two hours to a day, um, it, which is great. Um, there are some qualitative platforms out there um, that allow you to 
uh, do similar um, recruiting tactics and um, allow people to um, respond to some qualitative questions you may have to get their rationale. Um, and then there are some, I think, even quicker and dirtier ways that people can do that are a little less conventional. That's a lot of the tactics we take at a more um, established company. Um, but there are some tactics like um, if you already have an in-market product, contacting your users with a survey if they've legally opted into being contacted. Um, and you don't necessarily have to offer an incentive to everyone. You can offer a $100 Amazon gift card to a randomly selected person, right? Often find that we get very good responses with things like that. And they're not very costly to do. Um, there are certain mm -hmm. things like um, I've heard of some people creating um, a Facebook ad for their product if it's not in market yet. And product doesn't exist. It might not be a real web page, but put it out there on Facebook. You can get an ad spot and see what the traffic looks like and see how many people are interested in clicking on it, right? So there are a lot of creative ways that you can start to get some of these insights um, that aren't as um, labor intensive or cost intensive as some early might be able to have the appetite for. That's interesting. So what if you what if you actually didn't have an idea and you were thinking about, well, what if I want to go out there and figure out what's like, where's the white spaces that exist that don't that exist right now that I might want to slip a product into? Is there, are there resources for that? Yeah, so those tend to be I think, more qualitative. You're going to want, want to go that route. So I'll preface by saying the best research has an element of qualitative and quantitative. So some element of talking to people and understanding their rationale and then taking what you learn from those people and actually quantifying. So in qualitative, you can get themes, right? You can say, okay, a lot of people mentioned this, this, and this, but what's the one, like, what's the, if I look at the, the general US population, what's the thing that most people are resonating with? That's when you would want to validate it with quantitative. So I'll preface it by saying that um, the best research has an element of both. Um, but when you're trying to explore a totally new market and understand what people might want, really understanding what their what their behavior looks like today, what that customer journey looks like, and what those pain points are that exist in that area today is going to be the most valuable. Um, and there, there are certain qualitative methodologies that will get you there. Oftentimes when you're dealing with pain points, uncovering pain points and what people are struggling with, doing what you call a diary study is really valuable. So a diary study recruits someone for an extended period of time. It could be a week, it could be a month and asks them, um, sometimes we'll ask them, anytime you have an issue with X, we want you to document it and tell us. Um, and you can be doing it with 15 people. Um, and over the course of a week to a month, you get a lot of people documenting a lot of issues. That's really valuable when you're trying to mm. uncover issues because when you're just interviewing someone, it's really hard for people to think point of time, everything that annoys them about a specific market, right? Or a specific industry. It's really expensive, easy. Is it really expensive? Diary studies can be expensive. Um, they can be. Um, I think that tends to be more of a labor intensive, um, more of a labor intensive, um, methodology, but realistically, I, I mean, a few thousand dollars to get a pretty robust diary study. And you'll be surprised coming out of that. We've done studies where we're exploring certain markets and we identify a hundred pain points, um, in that week from the 10 to 15 people we spoke to, um, a lot that we never would have understood before. That's actually really reasonable when you think about what you can get out of it. Um, but it seems like the but the data doesn't really capture that, right? Because this is stuff that's kind of out of band. Otherwise, the data would have captured it and you would have already done something with it. It's, it's something that just happens on the fly, right? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of something like a diary study is you're capturing a point of time. So it's when people are having the issue that they report it. You're not asking them to think back for like a month and try to remember all of the issues they had when they were trying to play a mobile game, right? Um, right. So it's a lot easier to capture that point in time. So you get a lot richer information. So there's a lot of really interesting methodologies like that that allow you to um, kind of uncover where there may be opportunities for innovation. 
Interesting. Have you ever had a situation where the research has said this product is amazing, let's move forward with it, and you've moved forward with it and it's launched and it's been it's like been a total flop? Has that ever happened? <sighs> yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think talking about the specific product, but <laughs> I'm curious yes. to know and what I, do you think went wrong there? I think the challenge is that, right, like it is so rare that a concept you test comes to market exactly as you had envisioned it. So there's a lot of stuff that can be derailed along the way when you had a great vision. Um, and to be fair, a lot of the stuff we're testing is like design, to your point, design thinking what the ideal future state would look like. And when it comes to launching an MVP or a minimum viable product, you are not able to get there yet, right? So it, it may not be a smashing success upon launch, um, but it may build over time. Um, there's also times when uh, right, situations change, right? If someone was looking to launch a financial product in March of 2020, it may have been a wonderful yeah. idea six months before, um, and then COVID hits, and all of a sudden, it's not a very good idea anymore because people's financial situations are completely changed. So, um, a lot of context is also really um, important. And then you also get into situations where an idea might be great, people might love it, but it's too soon for consumers in the market. Mm -hmm. See this with a lot of like augmented reality ideas right now in the past few years. Great yeah. ideas. I'm sure they probably yeah. tested really well, but the infrastructure isn't there for people to actually be able to leverage them um, right now, or people just quite frankly aren't mentally there. They don't understand how to use the technology yet. They don't understand when they would use it. Yeah. So um, the, there's, there's just times when the situation's just, it, it's not right for launching specific concepts. Yeah. I think timing, you're, I think you've hit the nail on the head with timing. I think timing is a huge factor that people just don't understand that, you know, if you hit something at just the wrong moment, then it's too early or too late and it, it's never going to go anywhere. I mean, if you think about something like YouTube, there was a lot of competing video services at the same time, but, you know, YouTube just happened to hit at the right moment and, and the right market and, and boom. So it's like, if you think about it, there's a lot of luck involved in this stuff because all these little things have to line up outside of the uh, outside of the research. The research might be great, but if nothing else lines up at the same time, then it's not going to go anywhere. Totally. I think the other thing that's really important to remember in research, you're introducing concepts to people. So everyone you're talking to is 100% aware of the concept and that it exists. That is not the case when you launch something into the world. The world doesn't just automatically know that this product exists. And so um, a lot of the times you get very overwhelming positive feedback from consumers um, because they know about it and then it can fall down on the marketing and promotion side. Or I, I will say one of the big traps of consumer research, and that's why it's really important, especially if you're trying to use it to project whether or not people would use a product, is people are tend to be very overly positive in research. Um, so if 70% of people say they're going to use something in research, I can almost guarantee you that is not actually going to happen when it when it hits the market. And so yeah. that's a big mistake yeah. that people make is trying to take the consumer um, feedback on whether or not someone will use something or what's the price you would pay for something, right? Those are questions we get a lot that I, I always caution my stakeholders are, are very difficult um, to do through consumer research. There are methodologies that can get you there more accurately, but they are very um, thorough and more intensive than just asking people. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, you know, you've heard of Dan O'Reilly, obviously, right? I mean, predictably and rational. He was talking about how a lot of times when people do surveys, they just answer whatever, like they, they don't do it in any kind of good faith. Do you think that that's, that, that, that that's a small percentage of people doing that? Or is that like, does that really affect the results? It does. Um, it's, it's a really, um, it, it's a very big challenge in survey taking. And there are a lot of best practices in, in the industry to try to make sure that people are answering honestly and accurately and taking the time to think about it. Um, so they're like most of the like survey platforms I mentioned, most of them will have data cleansing on the back end that they go through. So are people just straight lining and choosing the same answer? they'll throw those people out. Did they go through the survey in two minutes when the average time was 12? They'll throw those people out, right? So there are data cleansing um, 
tactics that happen on the back end. Um, it's also really important when you're designing a survey that it not be very long. Past um, research back in the day said no more than 20 minutes, but that thinking has even gone out the door. Um, they're saying no more than 12 now, oh, yeah. right? People just don't have the- um, 12 minutes? The attention much on with 12 minutes. And the shorter, the better. <laughs> right. So there's all sorts of science that so goes there... into designing an effective survey. Yeah. So is there, is, is there like a, a sweet spot number wise of how many people you should be talking to when you're thinking about launching something? Like, is it 50? Is it a hundred? Is it five? Is it 15? Is it 2000? Like, is there, is there like a number that's reasonable? There is. Um, so there, there are a lot of calculations statistically that go into what, um, what an appropriate sample is for a survey, but the rule of thumb I always use is depending on the number of audiences you wanna break it down to understand, right? You wanna understand the differences between people who use your product and people who don't. You've got two separate audiences and you want 200 to 250 people in each of those audiences for a survey to be pretty confident that you're seeing results that are statistically significant with a 90 to 95% confidence interval it tends to be industry standard. So that's my rule, like kind of gut check rule of thumb. Um, that's ideal. Sometimes you can't get there. Sometimes you have to make the best of what you can get um, and, and, and take it from there. So, and, and a lot of the times, right? I think when you're dealing with applied research versus academic research um, and the difference is, Applied research is we're doing it specifically to solve a problem and provide guidance. Um, academic research tends to be more, this is an interesting question, let's explore it, right? Applied research tends to be very tactically um, connected to a specific decision that needs to be made. Um, when you're dealing with applied mm -hmm. research, it tends to be more general guidance than I want the specific percentage of people that do this. It's are a lot of people doing it or a little people doing it or more people doing this than that, right? It tends to be more directional and you can get away with smaller sample sizes when you're, when you're looking more directionally than um, when you're really trying to get to an exact number. Right, and then that uh, positivity factor you were talking about before, I mean, what do you usually discount that by? So if you said 70% of people <laughs> say they like it, is it actually more like 50 or 20 or, I mean, how? how is there a way to factor that to make it more realistic? Yeah, so there are certain methods that we use, right? So you can say on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to try this? And you throw out anyone below an eight, right? Um, and the people who say 10, let's say they have a 50% chance of using it, people who say nine, a 25%, right? So there's, some, there's a, a good amount of discounting right. that goes into it. Um, where I, I've seen success in the past is, um, especially when you're testing a concept and you want to know if it's good or not, is benchmarking it against either other similar concepts that exist in the market or benchmarking, benchmarking it against concepts you've tested in the past to see how it performs. So um, we've defined specific metrics at Samsung that we test all of our concepts on. Um, and so we can see, hey, this concept is performing better than all of the concepts we've tested in the past on these three metrics and worse on this one, right? Um, and you can do that. Um, it's often more effective to do benchmarking when you're benchmarking it with other similar concepts that exist in the market. Um, but that tends to be really costly and really hard to do. Um, but yeah, so that, that tends to be a, a really good indicator. So sometimes you'll have a concept and let's say you want to create a new disruptive digital based insurance offering and you see that lemonade's been really successful in the market. Maybe you want to test your concept against lemonade. Even if you're not saying it's lemonade, you're unbranding it to see like, how is our concept doing? Is it performing well against lemonade? If so, maybe we have something here. Um, so doing that can be really helpful too. So would you, in that case, would you actually present a similar service to Lemonade and then say, here's what we're doing and say, well, here's service A that does this and then service B does, you know, does this and then just compare those two and present it. You wouldn't actually name it during the survey. Typically you, doing it blind, blind, unbranded yeah. tends to be less biased. Um, 
So it, it, that, that can be really effective too. Um, especially if you're kind of benchmarking mm. success against, all right, if this person's doing really well in the market that we're thinking of playing in, how are we stacking up compared to them? And to my point earlier, tons of execution oriented things can get in the way of it being a success. Um, but at least, you know, the concept is stacking up well and you have something there. Right. So you've been, you've been in innovation space for a while. What do you say is the biggest barrier to innovating within an organization? I think it's the, the resistance to taking risk. Mm-hmm. Any good, like really good innovation arm organization um, will have tons of things in the pipeline at any given moment, expecting most of them to fail, right? But you try it and bring it to market and you see how it does. Um, or maybe you don't even bring it to market. Maybe it doesn't test well when you're doing consumer research and you kill it. Um, I, I think a hesitancy to, to do that, to fail fast and fail often is a really big challenge. Um, the other thing that I think often gets in the way um, in tech specifically, Um, is that people, a lot of companies um, are approach bringing a new service to market with, we want it to be revenue generating, right? Day one, we want to make sure this is a hundred million dollar in revenue. And that's not how- A billion. Right. (laughs) And that's not how services work. Um, But I I think- Right. When you're talking with quarterly returns, right? You need them to work like that, but that's not how they work. And, and like you look at Google, yeah. Google has so many services that were not intended to be remotely revenue generating for a very long time until they gathered that huge user base and then they monetized it. Or they're still not generating yeah. revenue today, but they use it for data to be able to monetize their other services, right? I think an inability to yeah. think like that um, and plan for the long term and create those building blocks because they're so focused on the upfront revenue is a huge barrier. Yeah, 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 absolutely right, absolutely right. Okay, so let's talk. To, let's, let's think like a futurist time. So here we are, ten years out. It's twenty thirty one. What are things going to be like in your space? Man, I quite frankly it. So I will just say COVID in general has completely transferred. So this last year, it is completely different than it ever has been in the past. All of the in-person consumer research that used to be done can't do it anymore. Um, So people have been scrambling this last year to even just find workarounds to that. Um, So I think that that is going to have a very lasting effect over the next several years. I think people, um, Mm -hmm. like I was mentioning, especially... um, Industries that have dealt more traditionally with consumer research in the past, I think they've had to get exposed to these new research methodologies um, and research tools that maybe they were reluctant to try in the past. They had to do it. And so um, you see mass adoption of these things and people are used to them now. They have certain benefits over actually doing in-person research. Um, but I, so I think that's going to be huge. I think these more like agile research tools are going to continue to play a huge part in um, research and will continue to um, play a huge part looking forward. Um, I think, so there's, I remember I went to a conference last year and it was really interesting because they were talking about blockchain and how it relates to consumer research, um, especially when it comes to survey taking. And um, to your point earlier, um, minimizing fraud or like bad actors when taking surveys. Um, There are certain apparently applications that blockchain can actually do to um, minimize the fraud um, in surveys. So I think you're gonna start seeing methods that help you get a lot more accurate um, in terms of the data that you are seeing because that's still a huge issue today is knowing whether or not you can actually trust the survey data. Um, Let's see. What I want to see. When are we going to see? When are we going to see AI actually look at everything that we do, gather all of this data, and then actually just come back to Samsung and say, "Listen, this is what Chris wants. This is the this is this is the product that he needs." When when are we going to get to that point? (laughs) I don't know. It could it could happen. Um, It could happen. 
I think the, <laughs> the, the challenge is, and I think the challenge will always be is the data still can't, like real quant data can still never tell you why. It doesn't matter how much technology you throw at it until you sit down and talk to someone, you're never gonna understand their underlying rationale because all you can see is what they're doing, not why they're doing it. Um, so that's great from like a job security perspective for me. Um, but <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that like we're already starting to see when consumer research is necessary evolving um, because of all of the data that we can now collect on people. You don't need to go to them and say, right. how many times are you clicking the like, how many times are you changing the channel every time you're watching TV, right? We can literally see that. We don't have to ask you that. We don't have to sit down and observe you watching TV to do that now, or you used to have to. Um, so the, the ways in which research um, are filling a need are changing. Um, and I think that it will probably continue to happen. Um, and I do think that the ways that consumer research is leveraged might get very much more targeted given all of the data we can already collect, but we'll be able to collect in the future as well. So you're saying that we can't read minds yet? Can't read minds yet. I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, we might get there. It, it may very well get to a point where I don't even need to talk to you. I can just like catch something to your head and you can tell, tells me all of your thoughts and what you're thinking, which might be wonderful and scary. Well, ideally, what would you say would be your ideal future uh, thing that would occur that would make your life a lot easier in this space? God, if consumers could predict what their future actions would actually look like, right? Like mm -hmm. if I could actually talk to a consumer and have them say, I would use that and have that be true, that would make my life a lot easier. I don't ever see that happening, um, but man, that would be nice. Um, yeah. Well, how often does that actually happen that you've had, you, you know, you, you got great results in the product, in the, in the consumer research, and then it gets to market and then people are like, yes, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. And I'm using it exactly the way you thought. Like, how often does that happen? Is there like, is that like 50%? It happens, I would say for every product, but for the number of people it happens for, that's what varies, right? I'd say everything we like everything I've ever seen brought to market, there are certain people who use it in the way it was intended and, and mirror what was happening in the consumer research, but um, it could be five people or it could be a million. Um, so I think that, that that's the difference. <laughs> how many people are really embracing it um, in the way we You have no it. idea how many people are this product. <laughs> But you, you do get some, you do get some inkling from the research. So it is totally useful. Like a startup founder who's listening to this is like, I'm definitely going to do some research because if I go out there and it just, it's like, for example, something like Homejoy, I mean, fail because I don't think anybody wanted to, not that many people want to use the product. So you, it sounds like what you're saying is that no matter what it is, you have to do at least some research before you throw the thing out the door. Don't have to, but it would certainly benefit you too. Um, it's only to understand, right? Even I, I would say some of the things that are hardest to get to are like, yes, I like this. No, I don't like this. It's really hard to come to a con concrete decision on that. What you can understand though, very easily is what are the barriers to actually using this that people see? What are the things that don't make sense to them? What are the open questions they have when you show them the product that maybe you need to do a better job of um, explaining? Um, designing, right? Explaining and marketing communication. So um, consumers can tell you a lot about things they like and they don't like, um, things that like their opinion on stuff. Um, so that's really valuable. Um, and that can really help guide the direction of whatever you're thinking of developing. And that, but that sounds like it's an in-person thing, right? It's so much better to have this, this you know, you're actually in the room with them and you can see them actually doing it. I mean, it must be really tough to do now. I mean, how, how can you possibly do it now? It, it's impossible, right? Easier with digital products because we can um, give them a prototype and they can use it on their computer or on their phone and we can see them using it, right? Um, and we can talk to them while they're using it. Um, with physical products, a lot of the time, a lot of what I've seen happen is you mail someone, you recruit someone, you mail them the product see them, you know, do just what we're doing right now over Zoom, see them play with it, talk to them. It is much better to physically, not even physically be in the room with them while they play with it. It's 
quite frankly, better to give it to them and follow them around in their life and see how they use it. But that is very labor intensive and cost um, intensive. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it's better. It's, it's nice to be in person, though. To be fair, in-person research presents its own challenges as well. When you're doing research over the Internet, I can recruit people from anywhere and do research. When you're doing in-person research, you physically have to be there. So if you have, let's say, um, right. So we have uh, labs where we can test usability at Samsung and they're in California. And that's awesome. But what that means is a lot of the people we get are from California. And that comes along with a certain level of bias. Yeah, those well. California people to uh, affect your product because they don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? it's, it's a biased population. Everyone's, and you want to make sure you're getting totally. diversity in the people that you're trying your product out with. So you can make, right? If you have a product yeah, that may be really relevant to people in cities, but it might be less relevant to people in rural areas, right? Like, there, you want to make sure you're getting a mix of these demographics so you can understand A, is it broadly applicable? But B, which are the populations that are actually more excited about your product than others? Yeah. Well, I always like the pop socket story. I saw that thing where the guy created them as a wrapper for his earbuds, but then they, when he gave it to some people they came back and they were using it for a completely different purpose. I mean, is that kind of like what you're thinking is that, you know, you've got to let people use the product, get feedback on the product. And then, and then that's where that's, you know, pivoting based on that is probably the most effective thing to do. It is. I mean, right. Ethnographic research, when you actually watch someone use your product over time, can be the most, some of the most valuable research. So I think the classic ethnographic decision that, that was made or insight that was uncovered was paper towels, right? They were doing research on paper towels and they actually followed people around for a few days to see how people use their paper towels. And this was before the half sheet of paper towels. They were noticing that everyone was ripping their paper towels in half. Not something likely you would have uncovered in a focus group or an interview, but watching people use the product, they realized, hey, there might actually be an issue here. Maybe the paper towels are too big and you should create the half sheets and the half sheet of paper towels was born. Um, so it really is right. in, invaluable to be able to really see how people are using your product because there may be pain points that you didn't know about that wouldn't come up naturally in conversation. And there may be other intended uses to your point that people are using it for that you never could have envisioned. Yeah, fantastic! I love it. Get to know your customers deeply, and you'll never, you'll never do them wrong. <laughs> Sounds like it's important. This and is remember great. So thanks so much. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. So, uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Shall put your contact information in the notes. But is there any other? Oh yeah, just email me. I'm I'm here. Email me. LinkedIn me. Happy to chat. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. All right. You too. Talk Thanks, to you Chris.